For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Strange Familiars. On tonight's show, Soraya from Where Did the Road Go will be joining me as we talk with Aiden. He's got stories of sleep paralysis, demons, and the reason why I asked Soraya to help me interview Aiden is he has Kundalini experiences as well, and Soraya has much more experience with that than I do. Before we get to Aiden, I want to thank our patrons. Thank you so much. Thank you for your help and support. If you like what we do, if you like Strange Familiars and you'd like to get extra content, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. There's different levels of support there, different tiers, but all of our patrons get commercial-free versions of the weekly episodes as well as extra content. We do full extra episodes of Strange Familiars for our patrons every month. Most months we do too. To check it out, go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. All right, let's go ahead and talk to Aiden. I would like to welcome Soraya to Strange Familiars. It's been a while, Soraya. How are you doing? It's been way too long, Tim. How are you doing? I'm doing good. And how is Where Did the Road Go? Also doing good. Good, good. And uh, hopefully you'll be on that soon, too. Yeah, hopefully I'll be there talking about my new projects, my new book, and uh, the new Stonebreath CD. So, uh, what's new with Where Did the Road Go? I don't know what's what's new with it. I mean, I'm I'm making some definite progress with my autobiography. That's good to hear. Yeah, so that might actually be out this year, at least part one. Awesome. Beyond that, I mean, it's just trying to come up, find interesting guests, and I've had a few that have been really great recently. And hopefully uh, I'm going to be coming down to see you soon. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully. We'll do the thing with your book and maybe we'll we'll do some other stuff, you know, somewhere. We got to figure that out. Sounds good. 
And I'm going to have uh, Saxon or Super Inframan coming up probably this weekend. Uh, I don't know when this is going to air, but we may do some stuff here as well and see if we can get anything on camera or audio. Yeah, this will probably be a few weeks. People will be hearing this a few weeks after we're talking probably. So So it'll probably come out around the same time. People can find Where Did the Road Go wherever they listen to podcasts and YouTube. And what's your website? Is it just wheredidtherogo.com? It is. All right. And we have Aiden with us. How are you doing tonight, Aiden? I'm doing good. Thanks, Tim. It's really awesome to to get to chat to you and to get to meet you both. Well, I definitely wanted to have Soraya on to help me interview you because you mentioned Kundalini in your stories. I don't know where you want to start. If you want to start with that. or I was going to ask you. Most people go chronologically, but it, yeah. if it makes more sense to start with one than another, it's really up to you. So I, I think chronological makes most sense. Okay. And I will add a couple of caveats. I feel like a lot of people, I've been listening to Strange Familiars a lot and the confessionals. And one of the main threads that a lot of people say is, oh, yeah, my experience was realer than real. The reality experience transcended this current reality. And I cannot say that I've shared the same thing. Now, I've had some waking moments where I've like seen phenomena clearly. But that realer than real thing, I always feel like, ah, man, just missed it because that's never been the case. It's always been dreams running into reality. And so there's always been a little bit of doubt there. So I guess I'm kind of giving you guys some of the information so you can dig around at it and see what you think. But So no, that's interesting. So most of the time people apply that to sleep paralysis experiences or things Mm -hmm. like that. And they'll say, oh, it was, and me included, you know. Hey, that was realer than real. I would seem like more awake than awake. So you're saying yours felt more dreamlike? Yeah, they were always they were always fuzzy, and I I do think that there was a reason behind that because my experiences were always face affirming, and so the more real that reality would have been, the more I would have definitively come to spiritual conclusions through them. And so I think that what I've come into contact with, they're clearly it's evil. I know that we're. There's a lot of trepidation around saying the word demon, but everything that I've encountered has been terrifying, demonic, and um, I know there's been a point to the encounters that I've had. And so I think if it would be too sharp, too real, too clear, it would have been, there wouldn't be a question. Because after most of my experiences, I don't write them down. I don't like log anything. And so after years, I'm like, did that really happen the way that I think it did? And then because of that doubt, there's always... That kind of just nags at you after a while. Well, that's common, though. That's common with with all kinds of experiences. Yeah, even if you write them down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's good to know. That's good to know. Because the further you get away from it, the more you start questioning it, and the more sort of, I guess, traditional skepticism kind of kicks in. Right, right. Yeah, we have a very materialistic culture that doesn't accept that stuff. So when these rare experiences happen, you know, initially it's like, wow, and then over time, you're like, well, maybe I could have misinterpreted it. Maybe maybe it wasn't what I thought it was. Right. I mean, even the Bible talks about certain things like that. Like Jesus gives the parable of Lazarus and he says, you know, well, your brothers aren't going to believe you if I come back, if you'd let you come back from the dead to talk to them, um, if they didn't believe the prophets before them. So it's like, oh, yeah, there is no matter how real these experiences are, there's always this degree of faith that has to be employed with everything. So. But you can put your hand on a hot stove and go, ow, that's hot. And then, you know, if a year later you say, maybe it wasn't as hot as I thought it was, you can put your hand on the hot stove again. Right. 
and verify it, whereas this stuff, it doesn't respond on command. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I guess I'll start. I guess I'll tell you where I began. Sure. My first episode of sleep paralysis happened when I was maybe three or four years old. And uh, it was when I was sick. So I woke up and I couldn't move. I was frozen in my body. And I remember being absolutely terrified. Couldn't move my fingers, couldn't move my toes, just stuck there. And that caused panic to kick in. And then when I panicked, I tried to open my eyes. And I realized that I, I regained some of my movement in my hands could start to blink my eyes, but I had pink eye at the time. So I was mortified to find that, gee, my eyes were locked into place during the sleep paralysis. But even after it subsided, I still couldn't open them from like the physical symptoms of being sick. Did you have pink eye before this experience or did you just wake up from this experience with pink eye? No, I woke up with it. So it was like one of those. And that was actually that that repeats itself later, not the pink eye, but waking up with sickness. Um, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something about altered states that accompanies being sick. I think that's just natural, fever dreams, that type of thing. And so looking back and I'm like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I had another sleep paralysis incident when I was maybe five. That Around that time, Batman Forever came out. It was like my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> And um, I had a bad dream about the Riddler and I had another paralysis incident. And there was no, again, there was no entities. There was nothing there to to scare me. It was just, I distinctly remember like an image, a brief image of the Riddler and then this, this sleep paralysis happening. And I just remember thinking, I do not ever want this to, to happen again because it's just so, the fear involved with it is you can't articulate it. It's as if something reaches down inside of you and breaches any kind of physical aspects and just takes your fear and turns it up to 11, you know, without any kind of stimulus. And so people that haven't experienced it before, it's kind of hard to try to articulate it, but it almost feels it's so quick. It's so fast. It almost feels artificial. But, yeah, that makes some sense. I mean, all the experiences I've had, and I've had some really weird ones, sleep paralysis is the only one that ever gives me any sense of real fear. Have you had quite a few of them? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're definitely not fun in that sense. But I think the more that you have them, the less impacting they are these days. I, I haven't, the last time I had sleep paralysis was a couple months ago before I moved back up to Pennsylvania. And um, anytime I pray, anytime I use Jesus's name, I do something spiritual, uh, something positive, it just kind of knocks all that fear away. It kind of makes it almost laughable. So the experience hasn't repeated itself. Good. Does, Since, does it end it? Yeah, yeah. it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I'm also, I'm a dreamer. I have really intense dreams. And um, my dad would say, well, Aiden, you've been having spiritual battles since you were a little boy. And I never believed him because there was always some aspect of my dreams that were, that was silly. You know, like you don't think of sleep paralysis and then think of Jim Carrey's The Riddler and like put those two things together and then like make that, like make any kind of like, ooh, that's a deep thing because it's like you have this weird time-specific pop culture reference and then you have the actual phenomenon and then because of like that element that you can basically just pop out of there and toss away jim carrey is the riddler it makes you kind of question the whole thing but that kind of popped up in another dream that i had maybe a couple years later where there was a presence in it and it had my bathroom i walked into my bathroom and there was this really bright light and it was so bright that it was painful 
And I remember in the dream thinking, oh, there's an angel in here. And uh, something reached out and touched me. And this is bizarre. I can't remember if it was a an octopus tentacle or a lobster claw or some kind of combination of the both, but it scared me to death. It was absolutely terrifying. And um, I remember waking up from that and I told my dad about it. He's a, He always takes this stuff very seriously. He's a very spiritual man. And my dad's had um, astral projection experiences himself as a younger man. And so he's never laughed at this stuff. But again, you know, that element of the lobster claw, the op- octopus tentacle, I'd be like, oh, that's not a traditional, like, demonic element of a story. That's just kind of silly. But now, looking back on it a little bit older, I'm like a little bit less hesitant to say that's silly. I'm more likely to say no these things, these little elements that are in place here, this makes more sense than what I used to give it credit. But again, being influenced by films like The Lobster Claw, The Octopus Tentacle, kind of goes back to childhood exposure of the TV miniseries It. And Mm -hmm. I forget where it is where um, one of them grabs his hand or does something and he tears off his glove and it reveals this claw-like tentacle that's Mm -hmm. you know, super cheesy, but also iconic. But uh, not all the dreams that I had when I was a little boy were bad. And this this dream I'm going to tell you about, I believe it was like a like either a hypnopompic type of experience. I was waking up, or no, I'm actually pretty sure I was waking up. And I believe the dream was about God. I remember another bright light, and I'm feeling this intense love, this essence. And I also remember feeling this deep sense of shame, of unworthiness, and um also the sense of separation. I knew that life isn't typically lived in this presence. And there was this sense of martyrdom, this sense of sacrifice that that came there. And the age that I experienced that, I probably want to say I was four or five when I had this dream. And it was probably a gift to counteract all the horrible instances of that with sleep paralysis. I feel like it was done specifically as a, like a gift that I would be able to draw upon later you know and you kind of catch little bits and pieces of it when you pray or when you meditate uh, sure. but nothing that explicit that that sense of ineffability yeah yeah transcendence and um love yeah that's it. it's uh, not when you, when you um, see love you're not talking so, the type of love that people feel when you fall in love it's more of an all-inclusive sort of love i think it was more like a filial like a parental love but it, it was a complete sense of uh, of just acceptance and just yes yeah, like a soak. You know what I mean? Like when you mm-hmm. soak in the tub, and you're like, ah, it was kind of like something like that, and a sense of peace with it. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, there was this duality. There was a peace, and then there was also this sense of responsibility, and again, almost like a, a duty. And you know, that said, this is a gift. You can't have this all the time, and you have a responsibility to act accordingly to this, and especially uh, towards fellow man. And it's like getting older, I realize it more and more and more. I had a, a patient, I used to do a hospice nursing, and I had a patient who described a similar experience, except he was dying of blood loss when that happened, and he was being rushed in the hospital. And he didn't die, but he said, oh yeah, on the way there, I, I met God, I felt God. And I said, oh, what was God like? And he's like, like a big hug. The big bright light surrounded me. It's just a big hug. It's uh, very common in near-death experiences. Yeah, which is cool. I love seeing those commonalities. I've done a lot of like reading on NDEs, and it just really fascinates me seeing how faith, and I guess just seeing how faith really does have a bunch of commonalities, and people across the board see the the same things over and over again. Then I was 17, 
turned 17. I don't know if I've had too many dreams since then. I had like the, the usual regular kid nightmares. And I turned uh, 17, worked at McDonald's in high school. I think it was about to graduate. My grandmother died. And uh, my grandmother was uh, a saint. There's no other way to word it. I know everybody loves their grandmother. <laughs> it's like, you know, so easy to just say, oh, yeah, my, my Grammy was, she was great. She baked his pies. But my nenin was a very special woman. My family comes from England. Half my family does anyway. And uh, my grandmother was just this devout Catholic woman who didn't just have the little nuances of the faith. She also had this non-judgmental love of everybody and was just so good at feeding that love to to anybody around her. And so you get close to her and the, the atmosphere was just a couple degrees cooler and you just felt this sense of peace and this desire to be proper and to respond to that appropriately. So I was very blessed with her. It's a rare and a beautiful uh, gift. It really is. Now, Tim, I know you come from a Catholic background too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, have you had the pleasure of bumping into a saint or two in your time <laughs> on earth? Uh, I, you describing your grandmother was very much like my maternal grandmother. She was everything you could ever hope a grandmother to be. And um, my protector within the family, we had a very dysfunctional family. She was my protector within the family and just a beautiful person, just shined love and beauty from inside her. That's awesome. That's such a gift. And and then when they go, it kind of makes you wonder what's worse, uh, experiencing this love and, and no longer experiencing it or never having the chance to experience something like that. So it's definitely difficult when those things happen, when they do leave. But uh, my grandmother died and I started experiencing lucid dreams at that time. And uh, so the first real lucid dream I had, and I think this was before the movie Insidious came out. Um, I believe Insidious came out in 09, and I, th- these started in 2007 for me. So when I went to go see Insidious in theaters, which wasn't a thing I normally did, it scared the the crap out of me. And it really resonated because it was as if James Wan took my dreams and made them into this movie. But the first dream I had was I woke up in my work's parking lot. I worked in McDonald's and it was hazy and dark and atmospheric. And I just remember the lights from the uh, parking lot being just illuminating everything, but also uh, reflecting in the fog. And I looked down at my pack of cigarettes and I, that I popped open and I noticed that there was white powder on them. And I was like, oh, somebody's like drugging me. And so the premise of the dream was basically me come going back and forth into this McDonald's and interacting with people that I interacted with on a normal basis. And the only difference was these people had no color in their eyes except for darkness. They were completely black hmm. and they were malicious. There was some kind of like malintent there that was present and it was terrifying. So I woke up back in the parking lot and I decided I need to get out of here. This is really scary. I'm going to walk back up to my house. So I walked up back to my house, which is a couple blocks away. And when I get home, my family's in the dining room and they all appear the same way. This deeply evil black eye that just looked right through you. And it was weird. It was as if they were whispering to one another about something meaty. And uh, like there was some kind of plot that was taking place. So I walked upstairs and I ran into these black clouds that floated over the floor. And I got the sense that they were like dogs, but there were the, the shape wasn't exactly pronounced. It was more like 
like a zero from Nightmare Before Christmas kind of thing where they floated over the ground, but there was something animalistic about them that said, this is mimicking a dog. And I believe there was two of them. And they came at me and I woke up. And I had a similar dream after that with the same moving smoke entities that kind of emulated dogs. And uh, around that time, I also started experiencing dreams with um, false awakenings in them. I would wake up in a dream in another dream. I'd, I'd wake up in my bed. And then when I would wake up in my bed, I'd wake up on the kitchen floor or whatever. Um, That's frustrating. Yeah, it is, man. It's uh, it's really frustrating. It's also frustrating that I'm like so lazy that I didn't write these down. So like a lot of this, I'm just operating off of my, my memory for them. But I wish I was better about writing my dreams down. When I do, it's kind of awesome because you have this record of your dreams and yeah. And uh, but then I'll go through stages like a year where I don't write them down and then I'll get into it again. And, you know, usually if it's a big dream, I'll try to write it down somewhere. But uh, yeah, most of them just go away if you don't write them down. Oh, absolutely. It's it's a yeah. consciousness. So now do you guys are you both dreamers? Do you have pretty frequent dreams? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I definitely specific themes that pop up for you or. I subscribe to the big dream, little dream thing, which I think Soraya does too. You know, some some dreams are just, you're just processing the day's work right. or whatever. And then some dreams are really big and important and full of symbolism and stuff. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I have some recurring dreams and then I have some recurring theme. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool, man. It like paints this picture, kind of gives you a story. It, there's something symbolic and Jungian. Ugh hate saying that but there there is something cool about that where you get to feel like you're playing a, a part and uh, takes away the mundane nature of life but at the time i would have much rather not had these things happen i had uh this thing start happening where i'd wake up in my bed and it would feel like something was yanking my covers off of me and um and then i'd wake up in my bed again and the thing would be standing there and it would try to pull my covers off of me and i'd wake up and i'd wake up and i'd wake up and um, yeah, uh, it looked like a ring race from Lord of the Rings. It was this tall, cloaked, dark figure that would stand at the end of my bed. And um, he would appear several times, but he was, again, vague. He was ambiguous, but he scared the crap out of me. He was uh, definitely somebody that I would feel. His presence was very particular, and he shared a similar presence to the, um, if not the same presence as the other entities I'll talk about in the few moments but he would show up and never liked that it was always very alarming and so when that happened i started looking up books went to barnes and noble started finding like dream symbolism didn't really find much in there i tried to find ways to stop lucid dreaming but it seemed like all the material about lucid dreaming was like ways to start right yeah <laughs> so dreaming so so you know and i'm like who would want to do this so you weren't trying no no. You were just becoming um, lucid in the dream. Yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. That's fascinating. I and could feel it happening, though. I could feel a shift. Like, if I got very comfortable when I went to sleep, I could feel myself sinking into myself, almost like a tunneling, and I could feel myself shift backwards. And I knew if that happened, great, I'm going to have, I'm going to dream about something tonight, or, and uh, I'm going to be scared shitless, essentially. Most people, or many people, I should say, when they talk about lucid dreaming, they can exercise some kind of some kind of control, not complete control, but some kind of control mm -hmm. over the dream. Did yeah. you have that at all? 
I believe I did. And I say I believe just for the sake of honesty, because this was on 33 and this this was when I was 17 that these really started. Mm-hmm. So I knew I could like control, like, I'm going to walk here. I'm going to do this. But if you said, Aiden, do you remember walking this three blocks back to your house when you walked from McDonald's up there? No, I don't. And honestly, I couldn't tell you if I skipped that, if there was a time jump or if I actually did. I don't remember it specifically, but I do remember having a specific type of consciousness that was more aware than than typical for a dream. Okay. You know, it wasn't like normal dreams can be where you kind of sit in the background. This was, I was front and center and participatory. And at least I felt like I was making decisions to do things. Mm-hmm. But my, my father then revealed to me, he's like, yeah, um, my dad had these experiences too, where he can force himself to lucid dream. He could force himself to project astrally. I don't think he knew what it was called. I think he stumbled upon it by accident, to be honest with you. But he would, um, I think he was in his mid-20s, and he would get comfortable, lay back in bed, and essentially roll out of himself. And he said he loved it because he would go flying around Mount Penn, and he could control people, he could manipulate things, but he stopped when he ran into, he flew up to the pagoda, to the to the base of the mountain of the pagoda. Mm-hmm. This is in Reading for people. This is in Reading. Yeah, for people yep. who are familiar. Yeah, and, and uh, he found this house, and this woman was in this house, and nobody ever noticed him when he was doing this stuff. He would just go off and do whatever he wanted and then come back to his body, and that was that. This woman turned and looked right at him. He was looking at her through a window, and she turned, and she looked him right in the eyes, and he said she had this deadly serious look on her face that basically said, you, I see you, and it scared him. It scared him to death. It sucked him right back into his body. He's like, well, I'm never never doing that again and uh he hadn't done it since but he he said that he felt this sense of danger in that moment that really said you're messing with things that you don't understand don't don't do this hmm. so he told me about that and i'm like yeah that's cool dad but i don't want to <laughs> and uh so then i uh one of the when it got blatantly demonic was um i had a dream where i was looking at myself in the mirror and I was talking to my reflection because I was getting very panicked with these dreams. I was like, my sleep quality was poor. And I, at the time, I was a smoker and just overweight and unhappy and just not in a good place. So I'm in a dream. I'm in my bathroom. It's the same bathroom in real life, talking to myself in the mirror, talking to my reflection. And I say to myself, am I possessed? And my reflection says back to me, yes. <laughs> And it was like, it was like a flat to the face. It was horrifying. And then I had a false awakening where I woke back up in my bed and then woke back up in the bathroom. And all of a sudden the wall to the bathroom rips off as if I'm in an airplane and sucks me out of it. And that was the dream. And so after that happened, that really kind of set the tone you know, for the rest of the dreams, this sense of of, uh, demonic falling me around. And the bathroom too. The bathroom seems to play a big, a big piece of my dreams. I don't know if it's listening to too much Elliot Smith and feeling like some kind of lone, douchey romantic. But I don't know. I'll let you decide that. But the next bathroom dream I had, or around that time, I had another one where I was looking in the mirror, and we had like a, a mirror that was broken into three pieces. You could like open, open them up at different angles and like put your toiletries in it. And when I was there, it was like partially opened. And when I closed it, I could see this little boy standing behind me and I turned around to look at him and he was a shadow. He was a shadow figure. And uh, like uh, 
completely black except his face was like gray and kind of had a feeling like the grudge and he expressed the same kind of anger or fear that the tall entity that gave off very very scary stuff yeah i guess there's not really much else to tell with that one he was just standing there looking at me but it was just there was something about him i know people can experience fear with shadow people they can experience new like a, a neutrality but this dude was definitely no good did not like him but i did find it strange though a lot of people describe them as blacker than black but my guy was kind of like noob cybot from mortal Kombat. he had this smokiness that's um, not common either so then the smoky description does get uh oh really put out there as well yeah mine have always been blacker than black but numerous people have told me they looked smoky to them yeah we've had when both you... i think on strange familiar oh cool M- well, mostly so you black have faces mostly blacker than black but sometimes smoky no one's described a face for shadow people to my knowledge okay. yeah not, not to mine either oh okay little boy had a face hmm. we'll say that yeah it was if you would have asked me i would have said mexican he definitely had like an asiatic eye kind of a bowl like haircut but again like a pale grayish look to the face so i don't know two years go by those dreams kind of stop i'm 19 i move into a different room and i started feeling i started getting these dreams again this time i was doing a lot of naughty boy stuff i smoking a lot of marijuana just really bad place really kind of blasphemous and gross don't like the person that i was at that time very selfish and uh just kind of treating people as um objects rather than how they deserve to be treated so i started having these these experiences with sleep deprivation at work i was closing i was still working at mcdonald's i was closing or i was opening so i'd be working until one o'clock in the morning and then I'd be opening and going down at four o'clock in the morning so my sleep schedule was very messed up so i started having these dreams where i felt this presence in my room and the presence would take first it took place in the corners of the room like up at the ceiling where everything intersects so there's like the the two walls and the ceiling they meet and then this like almost like black cloud that would hang out there and it was not expressly known there was just something that scared the hell out of me about the the corners of the room and this is where the kundalini stuff kind of comes into place so the first time that this thing kind of pops up in essence not in any kind of physical way was when i was having a lucid dream and i guess i called the dream bobby collected body parts at a good friend named robert bobby and uh, uh, we were bros. We used to hang out. Him, my buddy John, and I would hang out all the time. And uh, I had another musician friend. His name was Sean. And he wrote really amazing music. And ironically, uh, the project moniker that he goes under is Quentel the Cryptid. And uh, it's very kind of weird uh, synchronous. But So he wrote a song called Bobby Collected Body Parts. And uh, it just kind of stuck in my head because my, my buddy Bob and our circles kind of intersected. Bob and John and I would out and we'd, every now and then we go hang with sean but this dream was us walking down this winding winter road and it was snowing it was kind of like scott pilgrimy this black on white feeling and i'm like turn to bob and i say hey what are we what are we doing man and he just says calmly oh we're going to collect body parts hmm. and uh, it was just so creepy there was it was just uh really just hit me and of course i had a false awakening i woke up and instead of waking up in my bedroom at the time, I woke up in the bedroom next to mine, laying on this bed, and I had my guitar in the corner of the room, and something struck the strings, and it made this very loud, very jarring, violent, discordant sound, and it hurt the, it hurt my ears. 
and I jump up and I start speaking in tongues that I don't understand. I pull my phone out of my pocket and I'm scared because this dark presence comes on me. I feel it, but I can't see it. And I'm trying to talk to somebody on the phone to express that I'm in danger, but I can't because I'm speaking in tongues. Mm. You know, that dream kind of ended, but there was just this, that it was just a really sad sat heavily on me. And those dreams were happening all the time at that point. A friend that was connected to our group of friends that committed suicide and just more and more dark things started happening. It was just kind of a soup of depression and and um, really avoidable stuff. Looking back on it, it's just quite pathetic. It's just a 19-year-old being a 19-year-old. But yeah, but that didn't stop the fact that anytime I stayed up too late or woke up too early, these things got worse and worse and worse. So I'd have auditory hallucinations. I remember getting home from a work shift and laying down on my bed and hearing as if a thousand people were speaking into my ears as I was falling asleep. It felt like there was just a group of people standing around me and talking, mm-hmm. uh, basically talking into my into my face. But uh, th- those things kind of happened. They kept happening. That is definitely something that can happen with sleep deprivation. The auditory hallucinations or yeah. the experiences in general? The, well, both. But I mean, the these... Sounding like a ton of people are speaking to you at once. I've had that happen when I've been up, you know, long periods of time. I try to go to sleep, and as soon as everything's quiet, it seems like the room is just filled with a ton of noise. And you know it's in your head, but it's, it's very annoying because it keeps you awake. It's so funny you say that, though. At that point, I just got so irritated that those, th- <laughs> those things were happening. Was that, And I would just, I would basically sleep out of spite just because I was like, I'm so tired. I don't, I don't care, bro. Like, leave me alone. So if it's me, if it's somebody else, I don't care. I just want to, I just want to like sleep and just like throw some pizza in my fat face. That's all I want to do right now. But, but that actually opens it up man, to the Kundalini or what I think is the Kundalini experience. So one night I didn't have a very nice boss. One night I had to close. I was up until one o'clock closing the store and I had to go back and I had to open the store at four. (laughs) And so, yeah, yeah, it was really gross. I'm pretty sure that's illegal. Oh yeah, but you know, this was these were the good old days, man. This is 2009. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't think McDonald's really cares about the uh, the rules involving uh, opening and closing with their employees. But um, I don't know why I did this, but I thought I'll just get an hour of sleep. I'll just try to sleep for an hour, and uh, we'll see how this goes. Which was really stupid because you can't ever really fully sleep anyway for an hour. You're kind of half in, half out, mm-hmm. and so. That's how this began. I had an out-of-body experience where I felt myself being pulled from my body, sucked up to the ceiling, and then I could watch my I watched myself on my bed sleep down below me. And uh, it was very frightening. But I then was pulled back into my body, and I had a dream about a vineyard. I don't remember specifically what the dream was. I just remember that there was a vineyard involved. And then I woke up and had a paralysis incident where I was uh, laying on my stomach at the time I slept on my belly and um i felt this rumbling down my spine as if somebody took a tuning fork and like banged my my spine with it and almost like a rumble back the vibration was so intense that it made my skin itch and i had these bizarre hot and cold sensations i couldn't tell you if i was hot on the outside and cold on the inside or vice versa i just knew that i was sweating and i was somehow both cold and hot now were you were awake or asleep when this was at half it was like a half awake half asleep experience okay and it was terrifying the vibration was just very very brutal and i felt this thing like basically like sucked out of me and it was this big cloud and it had a face 
And, uh, but a vague face. I've spoken to people about this. Actually, a friend from my nursing school, he's a uh, therapist, actually a licensed therapist, would see these and he's like, yeah, man, they're like ghastly from Pokemon. And I'm like, yeah, dude, you know exactly what I'm talking about. He's like, yeah, I see this thing all the time. But basically, it's this big cloud that, that hovered and it told me it had seven names and spoke things that I didn't understand. And it was just terrifying. And I believe it counted. I believe it counted after it said it had seven names, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. But in hindsight, I'm like looking back at that and I was thinking, well, that was in Emily Rose. There was this connection there and that was a movie I'd seen a few years earlier that had impacted me. So I was, you know, I always questioned the validity of this, but this was such an impactful experience that I was like, well, throw away any of the, the, the movie elements, any of the theatrical stuff. There was some core aspect of this experience that was very, very real and terrifying and an indicator of, of where I was spiritually at the time, which was I was dead. You know, I was no good and um, fooling around and doing things I shouldn't have been doing. Uh, trying to describe the cloud itself to the demon itself. Now, I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly or not, if it was just that I was so sweaty, but I can't remember if it if the thing itself felt wet or moist or like I gave the, 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 the appearance of having some kind of like physical smoky slash like rainy condensation atmosphere to it. And I also don't know if I'm misremembering if there was some kind of electrical component to it where there was electricity in and out of it like a rain cloud. I don't know, but that like I had this nagging suspicion that was somehow incorporated in it. But the fear kind of like at the time I couldn't like take in details like I wanted to just because I was so terrified. Right. the vibration in the experience was just this weird indicator and so years later i get into yoga and um i'm reading this book like i said on on uh, yoga by william broad and he starts talking about the kundalini phenomena and these weird energies that happen to go up and down the spine and i'm like that's super weird that seems like something that i've experienced especially just the 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 vibratory effects what are your impressions of so Obviously, the vibratory effects are very Kundalini-ish. I've had all different types, uh, some that vibrate my whole body, some that just shoot up and down my spine. I've I've woken up with what felt like a blast beat from a death metal band going through me. Terrified me because I thought it was my heart, and I don't even think my heart could beat that fast if it tried. I woke up and went, oh, nope, that's energy. Why is it doing that? Hot and cold are very emblematic of uh, Kundalini awakening. They can make you either very, very hot or very, very cold or a flux like you're experiencing. It can also cause you to have auditory and visual hallucinations, too. That's the other thing. That was the first thing that happened with me because I had a spontaneous awakening of it. And I would see, like, I would play trombone and I would see steam coming out of the end of the trombone. And I knew there was no steam there, but I was seeing it like it was just as real as the trombone. Mm-hmm. Or I'd hear like cans rattling when there were no cans anywhere, anything that could make that sound. And those are all, both of those things are common with Kundalini awakenings. It sounds like, I mean, from what you're saying, it sounds like you were in a, a pretty bad place in your life. 
you know, whether you realized it at the time or not. And this sounds like it was kind of a wake up call for you. So, yeah, that was definitely how I took that as a as a wake up call. Sort your life out guy kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so I guess that's kind of why I always paired the experience with with like something negative. So my question would be then get into yoga le- years later and I don't have any kundalini experiences even with like a devout postural and um so asana and pranayama practice you know one would say like oh yeah that, that would be the road to experiencing it again if you wanted to so why why would do people experience them spontaneously without any kind of without any kind of practice and then you can spend all your time practicing and nothing even remotely close to that happens again it seems like Kundalini sort of has a mind of its own. I, I fully believe it's a part of us, but I think it's there when you need it. So the spontaneous awakening happens because you need it. And whereas, yes, you can use that energy and, and do Kundalini yoga and eventually get it down and controlled, it doesn't have the same effect. Like, it's beneficial to you, mm-hmm. but it's not... Like, most paranormal things happen when you need them. They, they happen for a reason in your life. Even if you don't understand what that reason is, right. uh, they happen at times of change. They sometimes promote change. They happen at liminal times of your life. Like I said, they're there for a reason. And I think your Kundalini awakening sounds like it might have actually cleansed some of that darkness that you had inside of you. Because that's what it is. It's a cleansing energy. So it may have gotten to a point where there's a part of you that said, I need to get this stuff out. And that might have been the cloud you saw. Was you releasing that stuff from yourself? Yeah, or I might also counter that and say, because I've always tried to reconcile my Christian beliefs, my Catholic beliefs with any kind of Eastern mysticism, which there's excellent Eastern Christian content out there too. But, you know, being Catholic, you end up getting a lot of the Western stuff, which can sometimes sap prayer experiences of like the vitality that we really crave. Right. Um, but hearing about that, I, I always just associated the entire experience with something negative and demonic because it's so easy to say that was negative and demonic. But sure. really, it could just be that the experience itself is a vehicle. And then depending on what our actions are at the time, you experience the fruit of that. And so if you're behaving poorly, you're like those, those would be the negative consequences that occur. And so it's not necessarily that the phenomenon itself is bad. It's just that you're going to end up experiencing wherever it is that you're placing yourself. So I have yeah. opened myself up to that concept. But you um, you kind of get what you give. If you're putting negative energy out there, your your negative your experiences are gonna be negative. Mm. A lot of times people go into paranormal experiences, they're terrified by them, and they continue to be scary until they approach them differently, and then they stop being terrifying. Yes. One of the more famous ones being like Whitley Strieber, who was terrified at first, but after a while he started being able to interact with this stuff and realized, oh, this isn't terrifying. I was just scared because it's unknown. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had similar things that, you know, going out in a fearful state and then making a conscious effort to like, no, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to go out there and be afraid. And it's changed everything. It's changed my experience. It's changed the way I interpret things. It's obviously a a net positive, but you will get some measure of what you bring back. Now, to step back to the the Kundalini thing, Soraya, this is sort of a question for you. Let's just imagine that there was a demon, right? Somehow, or a a negative entity of some sort. And could, in your opinion, uh, Kundalini as this cleansing force 
could he sort of have performed a self-exorcism in a sense? The Kundalini so, sort of like cleansed that out of him. Absolutely. And it, yeah, I mean, if, if, if something had moved into him, which is an experience I had too, yeah, the Kundalini definitely could have worked as a cleansing force to help him rid himself of that. And Aiden, did you feel after this experience, things in your life changed, got more positive, et cetera? Yes, but it took years because I, I lived an incredibly selfish existence for another six years until I, I found my wife and until I found Jesus and I converted back to Catholicism. Everything I had done up to that moment had been self-serving. And even those things in themselves were very self, self-serving. But I would definitely say that it led me on the path. I had a different perspective in the sense of we don't mess with certain things. There are limits. And I, I'm a boundary hopper. I'm a very mild now compared to what I was then. But I used to say and do whatever just to get a rise out of anybody, to make people laugh, to offend people. And uh, that definitely put a limit. That definitely said, here's a boundary. We don't step over this. And that became apparent. But as far as like how everyday life was concerned, like living out in my everyday life, things started changing like in more like superficial ways. So maybe a year or two later, I quit smoking. And then a year or two later, I started losing weight. I lost over a hundred pounds. And then, you know, like little things started snowballing. I stopped working at McDonald's. I went back to school. All these things kind of happened, but in my mind, I never attributed it to Kundalini, but or or that experience in general. But I, I suppose that that very well could have been one of those stepping stones that just tweaked my mindset a little bit and said, we don't do this. We conduct ourselves with this kind of candor right. and integrity. And, and that could have been that. But I'm um, sorry to say that I was still an ass, <laughs> not a good dude. It may have taken some time. I mean, that might have been the first thing on, on your path to, to changing. You know, exactly. you, got, you got rid of a block that that was preventing you from, from progressing in a positive way. But it's going to take time. It doesn't happen overnight. Right. Right. And uh, I'm an Amazon kid, man. We love to get things now. You know, I want what I want and I want it on my doorstep, baby. But the, the, they did not stop those things. So that guy, that entity that I saw, I've never seen him with a face again, but it has come back. So I can't cite any experiences immediately after that experience with the Kundalini uh, with him, with that dude. But I can say that after I got married, things started to shift in my life again, and I started experiencing started experiencing uh, sleep paralysis and those different types of demonic attacks. I don't know. I always kind of try to analyze what I did to open some doorways. And at the time, so I was doing yoga constantly. Uh, I went to Thailand for a couple months, and I learned how to teach uh, yoga. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Bikram yoga. Mm-hmm. No, but um, it's hot yoga. So it's a traditional 26 postures and two breathing exercises. It's basically referred to as the McDonald's of yoga. Every time you go in and you, you, you go to a class, you're getting the same thing. You're getting a breathing exercise, the postures and other breathing exercises, and you're out in 90 minutes. You sweat tremendously. It's heated to 105 degrees. It's supposedly 40% humidity, whatever that means. But it's this really, really difficult postural uh, and breathing practice that I fell in love with when I was 23. And um, it opened the doors for spirituality for me. It was one of those big, it was a game changer, especially towards the end of it. So I went off, went to Thailand, 
did more naughty boy things, street vendors that um, did uh, some, what do you call it, fortune telling and kind of just dabbling in like a cold bike activities like that without any real care. But no, but it's funny though, because you can do these like directly like dangerous things. You can smoke weed every day. You can drink a lot of alcohol. You can meet as many women as you want to. And it just seems like like evil is perfectly okay with allowing you to do that and have this veil drawn over itself. So I do believe in the existence of Satan, clearly. And I do believe that he is more than okay with me. Just, yeah, jump in the driver's seat, baby. Do whatever you want to. You need to pretend I don't exist. That's cool, man. Good for you. I'm okay with keeping this this veil covered up because just as long as you're doing all those hideous things that you're doing and not analyzing them too much. So I kind of, it's ironic, you know, I started this practice of mindfulness, but I was not mindful of anything but myself and my selfish desires, you know. Sure, I lost weight, I quit smoking, I did all these things, but it was, oh cool, I shed 100 pounds, I look good. Oh cool, women like me, I'm going to go get a bunch of women, I'm not going to be tied down to any people. And so it was just more of the kind of hideous behavior. And so when I met my wife, it was at a yoga class. I knew right away that I wanted to marry her and I always had that fear. I know it's not cool to say this because like people don't believe in hell these days, but I always, you know, had that sneaking feeling. I'd go to bed at night. And I'm like, man, I'm hell bound. I'm really hell bound. And um, my wife was just so cool. She sat me down. We were in this tavern in West Reading and she says, uh, you know, I really, I really want you to, I don't want you to feel like that. I want you to be serious about your faith and I want you to, uh, I really want you to get be right with God, and I don't want you to be worried about hell. I really don't. And um, we weren't married at the time, and so I started taking my my faith seriously, and basically said, "All right, God, you know, I do believe in you. I do know that you're real. I've always had this sense that Jesus was God, that He was very real. Uh, it's just that I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do, and I wanted to serve the God of my my tongue and my stomach, and you know, whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted." So I made this very sincere conversion and uh, it was awesome. It was really cool, but it was always held in conflict. It was always held in tension with everything and especially with yoga. Because if you're <laughs> if you're doing yoga classes, you're always going to turn the head of, heads of a bunch of Catholics. You know, there's always this yogas from sight kind of attitude that you have. And while I wouldn't directly say that, I think that that's a very naive thing to say. I would say, well, there's spiritual baggage with yoga. And you're definitely picking stuff up that you don't understand. So if somebody came up to me and said, Aiden, should I do yoga? I'd say, well, I don't know what the, what's the context. Like, what, like, what are you doing this for? Why are you doing this? If somebody said, hey, you should practice, uh, you know, I'm thinking of doing some Kundalini yoga. I'd say, no, that's, that's probably a terrible idea. Don't do that. Because most of us just don't understand how dangerous that is and what we're actually, what we're actually doing to ourselves you know, when we're taking part in this postural um, sequence. So if if you're not willing to kind of like deal with your own personal demons too with this stuff, then it can be a very negative experience. Like Kundalini's going to dig out those blocks, those things about you that you don't like and that you don't want to deal with. That's one of its primary things. And it's going to present them to you. There's no way of getting around them. Yeah. And that, that was actually my positive experience with yoga. Because um, in Catholic theology, it's all about picking up your cross. And I was like, yeah, actually, you know what? That's that, There's a lot of yogic stuff in there. When you're doing a posture, when you're 
stretching a body part that hasn't been stretched or or practicing strength in a way that's really challenging you really pushing you to look to the limit you don't have anything but you and the barrier and the only way to get through the barrier is by being willing enough to sit inside of the pain that that barrier causes until it feels a little bit better and then a little bit better the next time and so on and so forth and before you know it you crash through the barrier and you're soaring and it's really it's really cool and i think what you said about why are you doing this that's an important question for a lot of things in life oh yeah and especially spiritual things like why are you doing this just for yourself or are you doing this to you know improve everything you know be a better person be better to the people around you you know improve your connection to whatever you believe in so on and so forth and i think a lot of people don't really ask themselves why they're doing these things mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a very similar uh, approach to just the paranormal in general. Now, like, I will not necessarily warn people away from it, but I will encourage them to go in mindfully because if you, you know, the, you can go into it for the wrong reasons for sure, and it can go any number of ways. And I think if, uh, once it, well, it's again, it's like approaching it with the bad attitude kind of thing. Uh, depending on... Now, do you, do you both... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm such a bad... <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine. It, it it sort of depends on what you bring to it, like I was saying before. But anyway, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you, because I always feel like this. Do you two gentlemen feel like the only way, though, to truly know about the danger is to make some mistakes along the way? Because I, I always feel like that. I'm like, I don't think I would know this if I didn't, like, break so many rules and just crash through everything like a bull, you know, in a china shop. It depends on the kind of person you are. There are some kind of people that need to experience it for themselves. That reading it in a book is never going to be enough for them. And I could warn people a hundred times, do this or don't do that. And it's not going to matter because they need to experience it for themselves. I'm that kind of person. I need need to get it for myself. So it just depends on the kind of person. Some people are responsive to that and other people are not. Other people are like, nope, I got to be out there. I got to get my feet wet. I would agree with that, but I'd also add that sometimes the the things we learn most from in life are the mistakes we make. True. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I concur, for sure. Good experiences, sure, you learn a little bit from that. But when you have a really bad experience, I mean, unless you're the type of person that just keeps repeating the same mistakes, you learn the most out of those bad experiences, those mistakes you've made, the things that have hurt you. And you go, I'm not going to do that again, you know? Again, going back to putting... Putting your hand on the hot stove. You only really have to do it once to realize, <laughs> let's not do that again. Uh, yeah, I don't know what's wrong with me, man, that I have to make 20 of those hot stove mistakes. <laughs> it happens, especially when you're young. It's true. I, I will say this, though. In healthcare, it's a little bit different. Most people don't want to admit this, but to get good at something, you have to be willing to be bad with, at it for a long period of time. And being a nurse uh, or being a doctor... You make mistakes and people get hurt that way. And, you know, you get one of those and then it really punches you in the gut. It's it's not a fun feeling. No. So I guess uh, what happened next after the yoga. So I uh, picked up the rosary and started praying that daily pretty much and have had a, a relationship with the rosary since. So been praying it since 2017, the end of 2017 and have loved it and hated it the entire time it's just a really really painful experience i'm laughing because i know exactly of what you speak it's 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 humbling it's humbling isn't it though yeah Uh, so i know 
I was listening to you talk to a gentleman the other week and y'all were talking about meditation and and he asked you if you had a meditation practice and you said yes but i wanted to ask you what what is your meditation practice it's, is it the rosary yeah or? oh yeah mm-hmm. awesome man awesome how, how are you feeling with it you know it's good days and bad days and i was extremely frustrated until i read some of uh saint Teresa of avila's writings where she struggled with distraction heavily and it kind of hit me. I keep explaining this to people. I opened for a band called Bevis Fran in New York City one time. And I used to get horrible stage fright, like diarrhea before going on stage, stage fright. Right, horrible, right. like st- sick to my stomach, everything. And uh, the guitarist for Bevis Fran is one of the best rock guitarists I've ever seen in my life. He's, it's like watching Jimi Hendrix or somebody play. He's, he's fantastic, just stunningly good. And super nice guys too. And we're, you know, backstage before uh, before playing and I'm heading to the bathroom and the guitarist from Bevis France says, hey, don't be long in there. I, I get sick before I play. And I went, what? And, nice. and I said, wait a minute, you get sick before you play? He said, oh yeah, every night, every time. And for some reason, hearing that about him made my stage fright like 800% better. It didn't go away. But it made it so much better because I was like, oh, if this guy gets stage fright, like, it's okay. It's okay. And it was very similar reading St. Teresa of Avila. I was like, if she's talking about distractions and how much she struggled with them and she's a saint and has all these wonderful writings, then it sort of made it okay. The other thing is in Brother Richard's writing about meditations, he talks about distraction and coming back, kind of refocusing. And he said, it's like lifting weights. You don't just yep. lift the dumbbell and then hold it up. It goes up and down. And when you come back, you're flexing that muscle in a sense. And those two things really kind of help me settle a little bit. I'm not saying I don't get the frustration and the distraction. Distraction's almost constant. Frustration's a lot less so now, but it's it's a process, you know. It is. It's so incredibly painful. Reading like de Montfort talk about the rosary and he's like, yeah, it's hard to get through a single Hail Mary without at least one distraction. And I'm like, at least one? I can't. Like, I'm literally distracted. It's the most boring road prayer ever to me. And I'm like, ugh, I I want to spit it out. Now, oh, no moments where I really love it. For me, if I can, it's the mysteries that throw me off. Like, oh, get out, man. I'd rather just just sit in the middle of that prayer and give everything to Mary. And I, but when you start incorporating the mysteries and meditating on the mysteries and all that, that's where I'm like, it's almost like there's too much going on and, and that opens up to distraction for me. I totally hear you with that. And I'll say I've gotten into a place with my, my practice where if meditation on the mystery happens, it happens. If it happens on the words, I just let it go under the words. I let it just softly be held in whatever aspect I want it to be held in. And I don't like freak about it anymore because it's mm-hmm. like, there's so many people that approach it like the Jesus prayer, where it's just the it's the focus of the repetition of the prayer itself, repeating it either in your mind or on your lips, letting it descend into your heart. So that process is really beautiful. It's an excellent book about prayer that actually this priest, he's also a, a monk from Pittsburgh, wrote about a guide to receiving the love of the Father. And he talks about the rosary and just, it's such a malleable thing, man. You can rest in your mystery you can just focus on the words. You can really just you can sit in silence with your beads. It, there's just such a dexterity to the whole thing where it's like, yeah, this has a form, 
but this form can fall away as it needs to. And I don't have to be so married to it, you know? And, but that being said, like every day I'm like, I got to at least do my five decades, you know, it's so funny because it's such a naive thing, but it's like, no, man, I'm just, I got to bash these out. I got to get these in. And it's like, sometimes we're, we're called by God to just sit in the the silence and be okay with being <laughs> at our prayers. <laughs> You know, it's just like, no, nah, man, it's cool. Just like sit here with me. Yeah. You're a small child and just continue to be a small child. Really takes the pressure off. So that being said, those prayers really, really helped me. They really helped shape me. And um, they also really the, changed the way that I started interacting with different entities when they would pop up. And so you guys are talking about how fear, when you approach the, the experience without fear and you decide to go after it in a certain manner, there, you know, it totally changes the whole thing. And I found that through these prayers, that really did occur. And so Rachel and I get married. I start feeling this, this deep responsibility, this deep calling in me that says, you're a husband. I guess it's kind of the feeling that people get when they have children, you know, Mm -hmm. I got it when I got married. And so I started having dreams again. I started having these experiences with this cloud that would float over my bed. And one of the first dreams I had was this, my wife was colored green and bending she was in this like wide split kind of shiva like posture and like bending her back over and her eyes were black similar not dissimilar to the people that i was describing in some of my earlier dreams and just scared the the grab out of me again really really disturbed me there was just something about it that was just it was sexual it was demeaning to my wife it was just really awful so i understood that there's this attack there's this component there that's saying something about the the beauty of marriage and also you know my tendency to take things on a little bit too much but so i started seeing these clouds shift over my bed and roll and um they kind of like flutter over the bed and so this starts happening when i'm waking up i found that i have the the paralysis i was making an effort at this time to start sleeping on my back just because of the health benefits super lame getting old i know but still i'm like i better sleep on my back preserve my spine so I started having these hypnopompic uh, hallucinations and I start getting seized with fear again from these sleep paralysis episodes. And basically this cloud would like hover over me and just incite this fear. I couldn't speak. I couldn't do anything. And then by the time that I could speak, it would disappear. I'd have movement. And I'd be fine. And so I don't know at what point I'm like, I'm going to say Jesus's name and I'm going to see how this works. And I'm going to see if this actually has an effect. And the first time I tried it, I tried to say his name, but I couldn't physically say it. And the thing disappeared before I could say anything to get it away. But then eventually it did go away. I had an opportunity to practice it. It happened. I spoke Jesus's name and it just disappeared. And, you know, on and off throughout time, it would lose its efficacy. You know, sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't. And I don't know what it was that that made it work. If it was just faith, or if I was being too flippant, perhaps with it. I don't. I don't know what it was. But I will tell you this, and I don't know why this is significant. But I do feel like I have to say this. There's this chaplet called the Saint Michael Chaplet, or the Crown of Saint Michael. Mm-hmm. And um, I decided I was going to pray this. I was going to pray a rosary during the day, and then before bed, I was going to pray this because there's these certain promises that are associated with it that they they afford a certain amount of spiritual protection and so i'm like oh yeah i could always use that 
And uh, so I pray this and a couple of nights after I'm praying it consistently, I wake up from a sleep paralysis episode without the fear and I see this black cloud floating around and the movements are kind of fairy-like and feminine and there was no fear. It was as if it was just this little namby-pamby kind of black cloud that was just floating in the air and it disappeared. And I just thought that that was very strange that like just a small amount of faith, just a small amount of effort or attention, I don't know what it was, just it just completely withdrew whatever the power was from that entity. It was uh, laughable. So um, uh, I've heard of the St. Michael Chaplet. I'm assuming mm-hmm. it's part of it is the St. Michael, the Archangel prayer. Actually, you'd be surprised to find out. No, it's literally, it's, it's not. It, hmm. No, but it's got extended St. Michael prayers in it that are similar. They're just not, it's not the same. So it's, it's, uh, there are prayers dedicated to the nine choirs of the angels. Okay. There's a specific prayer like invoking different, you know, virtues mm-hmm. and our father and three Hail Marys. Okay. And so it, it has a feeling to a rosary to it, but it's not quite like the rosary. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just going to because the, the St. Michael, the Archangel prayer, if that was part of it, that's actually a partial exorcism in itself. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is, and it's a very good prayer. Do you, are you a you a fan of that one? Oh yeah, yeah. We we end every mass with it at my uh, at my church. But um, the thing about and you know, Soraya can attest to this too. The thing about praying this stuff away, in a sense, I'm all for it. It, it works for me. I get out of I've gotten out of several abduction experiences, including one recently, quote unquote abduction, and just by saying the Hail Mary, just bang, I'm it's done. I'm out of there. But right. The, the thing about it is, and I feel this is necessary to point out, it worked for Jewish people, it works for Muslims, it works for Wiccan people. It's not just a Christian thing. It seems to be a belief thing. I know that upsets right. some people. And that upsets some people because they think their their religion is confirmed by this, right? Oh, I called on right. whatever and it worked, therefore I'm on the I have the right religion. I'm Catholic and and I believe in that. But the fact is that this stuff is, uh, it's belief oriented. It doesn't seem to be oriented to any specific religion, which to me is super interesting. It's, it's very, very interesting. I don't think it discounts Catholicism or Christianity or Buddhism or pagan beliefs or whatever, nor does it confirm them. You know, I think that's up to the individual to make that, that decision for themselves. And, and, you know, I certainly believe one thing, but in any case, whenever people say this, I feel it's important to point that out because they've had, I'm not sure if they've done like one specific study, but I know a lot of people have written on it, right, Soraya? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's, my only thought is that whatever this other stuff is, it's not allowed to confirm anything or else it's just, right. or it's just all belief. It's something within us and something to do with belief that this stuff responds to. I'm not sure. Well, yeah, that I think that's part of it. But also you get people who do not actively or at least don't feel like they believe in, say, Jesus. But then in that moment of fear, they'll call upon Jesus and the thing will stop. Right. So is that a unconscious belief that they, they you know, that they grew up with that that's coming into play? Or is it just that that there's there's power because so many people believe this stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, like regardless of whether it's actively true or not is less relevant than the fact that with enough people believing it, it has a power of its own. Well, and I would also point out to, you know, I believe, but help my unbelief. So like if somebody 
takes that step, even in a moment of like, uh, like, you know, a Hail Mary moment, like, oh, let's try this. You know, I think that that's rewarded. I think that they're, that's for somebody that doesn't have faith or that doesn't, that's not mind, like that their mind isn't oriented toward that. That's a, that's a huge act of faith. And so also like, I'm one of those people that, you know, believes uh, in God's benevolence. So if we get to, you know, we die, we meet God and he says, you got my, my name wrong, bro. Like, I don't think, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't see him like, "Eh, well, you know, time for hell. You call me such and such, you know, like, it just doesn't make sense to me. So, um, and that being aside, I'm not casting my convictions, you know, to the side. I, I believe what I believe, but uh, I just, you know, God never strikes me as a, as a taskmaster. And I know a lot of people think that way, but. Yeah, just, but I think that's more the church than than anything else. The church, yeah, the church just created that perception. It didn't help it. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I always like the idea that God is a mountain and people see the mountain from different sides, have different paths to the top, but it's all the same mountain. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I will say on the prayer tip, I did have a dream with that evil presence and a, and a vibratory feeling and the rosary. So I had a dream that I was back in my old house. So this time I was living with my wife. So it was weird because in the dream I was in my old one of my old bedrooms and I was like getting up to go do something. I'm like, oh, I got to grab my rosary. I always keep my rosary at the end of my bed. And I just assumed that I had it in this old bedroom too. So I went and I grabbed it. It was there. Uh, the lights were off. Uh, the presence was dark. It was creepy. And I felt the similar thing that I felt in the past. And I felt resistance tug against my hand. So I had a rose, the, my black rosary in my hand and had it extended. And I could feel something actively pulling it back. And I pulled really, really hard and I could feel my hand 
vibrate. And it was the same rumble. It was the same vibratory feeling that I experienced in the Kundalini dream. But it was just just in my hand, just in my wrist. And uh, I, I got madder and madder and madder until I yelled F off. And I yanked my hand free and I got it out. <laughs> and, and it was funny because I'm like, did it let go because I, I swore? Or did it let go because I burst out with a sudden amount of energy? I don't know what it was, but I just, I woke up from the dream and I felt guilty because at that time I was really making you know, on a headway on not using foul language. And I'm like, man, dream eating really bummed that one. Like that was <laughs> no good, but like kind of analyzing that, giving that some time that for that to gestate and for any kind of weird guilt feelings to like roll off. Like what are your thoughts on uh, like emotion and like the energy that's associated with emotion in those kind of paranormal experiences? Well, it doesn't, I mean, it's, it's has some commonality with that thing that you kind of got out of yourself, right, Soraya? You, I mean, that thing that went into you and you kind of... Uh... Yeah, I just told it to get out. Yeah, okay. There, so in my memory, it was a it was a more forceful telling than that. Was that, was that it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But cause, because I felt, I felt my moral compass changing and I went, wait, did something actually go into me? Because I didn't believe it actually happened. Mm -hmm. And then I walked back outside to where it happened and I said, get the hell out. And I watched it move out of my feet and across the yard. And I went, holy crap. Now, do you think it would have left if you asked it kindly? Or do you think it was the, the, the forcefulness at which you... That I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think I was just annoyed by it. Like, Because again, I didn't believe it. Mm -hmm. This was a point where I didn't believe in this stuff. And so when this shadow is moving around me and I'm going, yeah, you can come into me if you want. I'm going, this isn't real. So but, was this in waking life or was this, yeah. was this a dream? Oh, okay. I was fully awake. Yeah. And I mean, some people will be like, well, that's a demon. But to me, it strengthened my moral compass because maybe realized something was happening is that my moral compass seemed to be drifting. And I was like, this isn't okay. Why is this happening? And then I remembered that and went, wait, was there something to that? Did something actually come into me? And so I went back outside to where that happened and i told it to get the hell out and i watched it move out of my feet and across the yard that's crazy so i didn't take it as a negative i mean it seems like a negative because it's twisting my moral compass but to me if anything it strengthened it so your takeaway was that it was something like a negative experience done to produce a positive result right and i, and yeah. I find that most of my experiences that have started out negative when i look back at them i'm like well they suck but in the end, there was a net positive to it. Yeah, I suppose that all the best experiences, not the best experiences, all the best fruits, all the best results really do come about from really awful circumstances. And we don't like to admit that because nobody wants to ever actively suffer. But I mean, right. like, when did you ever do anything that like felt good? that somehow like multiplied that feeling like days afterwards? It doesn't really ever work that way. I mean... Tim, you practice your instrument day in, day out, right? Uh, I used to. Um, my hands weren't numb. Yeah. Are you, that sucks, man. I'm going to be sorry to hear that. Uh, but are you still able to, to play? Are you still making music? Or are you. Yeah. Yeah. I can. Uh, it's, it's the technique and which instruments I can play have changed. Do you find yourself having to practice more to like to get back some of the things that you feel like you're, you're lacking? Or is it. Are you not able to do that so much? If I have to play something on five string banjo like i'll never play that live again that's gone but if i'm recording a song 
I have to play it until it's pure muscle memory. And people think all music playing is muscle memory. It's not. You're getting a lot of feedback from the tips of your fingers that you don't realize. And I don't have that feedback anymore. So I literally have to get all complete muscle memory. And, you know, it's, it's not the same. It'll never be the same. There, there are instruments that I can play as I played in the past, but they're, but not banjo, unfortunately. That really blows, man. I'm sorry to hear that. It's, you know, everything changes all the time and you got to go with it, you know? Yeah. You got to learn your paths around it. I mean, I played this weird game and I can't remember the name of it, but it was all about changing perspectives to get through it. And at the end, it basically says life is about obstacles. And the way to get around obstacles is to change your perspective. Mm -hmm. I had a therapist tell me like, this is no good, Tim. You need to take time and mourn stuff. You can't just plow through and get to the next thing. I'm like, well, but that's how I get through life. I create. And should I sit there and, and cry because I can't play banjo anymore? Or should I play what I can play and move on? Right. You know, and that's just, you know, it may not work for everybody, but that's, that's how I deal with life. That's me, you know? And, and if I, yeah. if I can't create at all, because I'm sitting around moping about what I can't do anymore, that's going to be far worse for me in the end. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I believe I've heard you say before, it does cause a bit of creativity to flourish because you have to, you do have to be thinking outside the box. Limitations are, if you sort of put limitations, like I can only use this instrument, you'll start getting very creative <laughs> because you know, right. you have to uh, sort of start breaking bounds and, and saying like, well, what can I do with it? Right. And, and um, honestly, uh, there's this um, Anglican author who wrote a book about the rosary and it's, it's contemplative use. And he, see, he talks about the difference between suffering and creative suffering. And it's basically just this small section where he speaks about the uselessness of suffering unless, of course, you approach it creatively, you know, you interesting. and with patience. That's interesting. Um, yeah. So honestly, his book on the rosary is like one of the best ones out there. And he's not a Catholic dude. He just has this really cool way of, of looking at everything. And it completely changed um, my perspective on uh, on different approaches. But yeah, that part really spoke to me. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, tell us about these so, photos you sent. Okay, so... And can uh, I reproduce those in the show notes for people? So they yeah, can see? Um, absolutely. And that's, okay. So I got my nursing degree in 2020. And my wife and I are kind of, we're just like fly by the seat of your pants kind of people. So we packed the cat up and uh, we went to Pensacola, Florida. And I did a nurse program there where I just basically had like an extended preceptorship and I worked on a, a trauma unit, ortho trauma, but it was right at the height of COVID. So just because we happened to have negative pressure rooms, I ended up becoming a COVID nurse and uh, horrible. No no fun at all, man. Just very high stress environment. And, uh, but we did, we loved Pensacola. It was so awesome. It was just a great time there besides the crippling anxiety I had from, from work. And so what you were talking about, you'd get sick from stage fright. I get sick going into work every day, every day I get up there and I'd be sick to my stomach because I knew I was going to have some real difficulties. And it, it sucked the compassion right out of me, too. Mm-hmm. You stop seeing people and, pro- and sickness as, as um, things to be compassionate about. You start seeing them as tasks that are endless and that, that like, if I go to you, this one's going to die. And if I go to him, then this one's going to do X, Y, Z. And so you just kind of stop looking at people as people and you just look at everybody as a burden. 
So, you know, in that aspect, it was really, really challenging. But my prayer life was pretty solid at this time. And I was having less and less problems with these cloud entities. So one night I wake up and um, I notice that this cloud is floating over my bed and I'm awake and I'm, I'm looking at it and it floats over my wife and the cat. And I'm like, no, oh, that's weird. It usually just comes over me. I didn't think anything of it. So a couple months go by and my wife and I are kind of contemplating going back up to Pennsylvania for the holidays. But my wife's had some real concern over that. She's like, what if XYZ happens? Do you really think we should go? And I'm like, we've been here for almost a year now. We can't spend time away from the family. We've been completely isolated, alienated from them. We really need to go. This is this is a big deal. But at the time, the cat started getting sick. And the cat is our, you know, she was our, our friend. We loved her to death. It was just cool, man. She just acted like a dog. She would come. She would lay next to us, on us, with us. She was always around us. And she's just so friendly and lovable. But she stopped doing that and she started hiding in the closet and she started having these weird sneezing attacks and coughing attacks and something was wrong. And when you become a nurse, you kind of decatastrophize everything. It's like, ah, she's fine. She's good. Like there's not a problem until there's somebody laying on the floor type of thing. But my wife works from home. So she was very much in tune with these things that are happening with the cat. So I'm kind of getting this this anxiety over it. And I was just really, really worried about, about the kitty worried about my wife just you know we were wondering what if the cat dies right before christmas or what if the cat's still sick and we can't go we buy these plane tickets and all these things are kind of happening right so it's, I, it's probably november at this point if i'm if i'm remembering correctly so this one day the cat is just sick i i had to take her to the bed i had to do all these things with her we found out she had some issues with her kidneys we just didn't know like it just felt like something else was wrong and so one day i'm sitting there and i get this inspiration and it felt like, I felt like God was speaking to me and he said, go get this book off your bookshelf. It's called uh, Deliverance Prayers for Use by the Laity. And I'm like, well, what am I going to pray? And it's like, you'll know when you open it. And so I had this bookmark of my wife and the cat. And on the back of the bookmark is Mother Mary. And it was just, I had these papers taped. I had like cut out a bunch of papers for my nurse notebooks, you know, when I was in school. I didn't feel right, like crumpling up a, <laughs> these like, images, you know, of my wife, my cat and Mother Mary. I'm like, I'm not going to just throw these in the trash. Mm-hmm. So I just taped them together and I made like a makeshift bookmark. Right. And so I go to my bookshelf, I pull off, pull out this book, I open it up and that bookmark is sitting in there with Mother Mary on the one side and my wife and uh, cat on the other side. And I'm like, oh, awesome. Well, I'm going to pray whatever this prayer is. And it's the the litany of the precious blood. And I get this other inspiration. It was pray the litany and run to confession. And I'm like, okay, all right, I can do that. And so I get down on my knees and I start praying the litany of the precious blood. And I don't know if you know anything about it, but it's actually a very, very powerful, very powerful set of prayers. It's it's just same thing over and over again, but with different little variations to it. And anything where you beg the precious blood of Jesus there is this very powerful spiritual effect to it. And so I never really get down on my knees to pray. I'm a lazy dude. I like to sit. I like to just pray, but I was like, I'm getting on my knees. So at some point during the prayer, I turn around and the cat who hadn't gotten out of the closet in a long time was sitting right behind my legs, just looking at me while I was praying. And it was like, wow, the cat hadn't gotten out of the closet in a long time. That's very, that's very weird, but also very talented. And the cat loved to sit with me when I prayed in the past. She'd sit with me with my rosary. She'd just chill out. It was just kind of our thing. And it was just really cool. So I get done praying. 
and I run off to confession. It just happened to be that when this happened, I had the day off. There was like a daily mass and my pastor was just, he was just a super cool dude. I could just be like, Hey, I need to confess. And he'd be like, come on, let's go over there. We can huddle under this tree and I'll smoke this cigarette and you can confess. And, uh, it was, he was just like, just the coolest dude. So I go, I confess and feel better. It feels good. And just this nice weight is taken off, but you know, so I had this reprieve for the day, but there were these like slow little connections that I was drawing between everything. And I realized like, Oh, I didn't realize that this, entity is hovering over the cat and Rachel. I didn't realize that this was like, it was saying something to me. There was this kind of this imposing threat. So time kind of goes on. I'm like, whatever, like you can threaten me, you can threaten us, but like, I'm not going to stop praying. I'm not going to stop trying to make strides spiritually. And I'm certainly not canceling my uh, Christmas vacation. And I know that that sounds weird, thinking that somehow the Christmas vacation was involved with this, but isolation is a tactic of the enemy. It's just such an easy thing to do. You isolate people, you make them feel alone, cut them off from their family, and you can you can basically lead people in directions that you want to. And so those things are very much viewed with disgust, especially if you're looking at it in terms of spiritual warfare. So one night I'm coming home from work, just still before the, the vacation, I had my hydro flask in my hands and I had other stuff in my hands that I didn't realize I had my bookmark on me. And the bookmark gets wet and it falls off of my hydro flask. I'm like, how the heck did this get here? So I pick it up. It's totally ruined. All the ink bled off of it. So I separated the pages. I'm like, I'm still not throwing these out. This is still Mother Mary and this is still my wife. I'm just going to set these to the side. And I set them to the side and I let them dry out for a day or two. So a day or two later, I pick them up. It's my day off. And I like look at them and I notice that there's this bizarre imprint over my wife's face and the cat. And it looks like a three or four fingered clawed hand that is reaching for both my wife and the cat. And it was very telling. And I brought it up to my wife and I'm like, hey, I think we're kind of getting said, look, what do you think about this? Like, I think that we're kind of getting this message that's saying dull travel don't go for the holidays and she's like oh what do you think we should just stay home and i'm like no actually the opposite i think we need to go i'm not gonna let something push me around if this is the case if this is actually what's being communicated so we make the decision to go we buy our tickets and our cat dies she had to feed her some some medications and i'm kind of a kind of a gruff dude when it comes to medications you know i just grab the cat in one hand and i stuff a pill down there and i'm like nope sorry you're not dying because i'm not Right. right, you're, you're mad. I'm gonna. This is getting in you. I can get over it. Right, <laughs> this one didn't. <laughs> oh, poor thing. So no, I mean, I say that in jest, but so I, I put this pill in her mouth, and she starts having respiratory distress, and I'm like, ah, man. So at this point, we had taken her to the vet several times. We spent a couple. I don't know if it was close to a couple thousand dollars. I don't know. I'm terrible with my money. My I get my money from my wife. She does all the to work with it thank god because we'd be homeless if it was me likewise yeah but <laughs> women what a blessing so we drive off and basically the vent says yeah she's gonna keep going into respiratory distress because this had happened before what do you guys want to do and i'm like i think we need to put her to sleep because she's she's miserable yeah and uh, so we did and it was really it was just so brutal it was just very uh, just a very painful event my head terrible anticipatory grief prior to the cat dying which is really weird as an animal you know but uh it's not weird no it's not weird but just you don't it's expect anticip- for some people. 
Right. Right. I think it was the weird part was the the anticipatory grief. Like I was crying for my cat weeks before she had died. Yeah. That kind of thing. And um, there was just that feeling there that something bad was going to happen. And it was not wrong. But it yeah. really, really hurt my wife. She was really broken up about it. And it was just so, it was just so painful. And uh, we decided that we were still going to go on vacation. So we go and um, lo and behold, my wife was going to leave a little bit earlier than me. I was going to stay a couple extra days, hang out with my family and just like bum around Pennsylvania and see all the lame stuff that we've got and then go home, you know, having had my fill of um, Wawa coffee and um, traversing the back roads in, in Moton, you know. But uh, Rachel goes home and she gets COVID. Like she she had it, I guess. She must have like started getting symptoms on the plane and she got gobsmacked with it. She was very sick and I got a stomach bug. And so... And I never get the stomach bug. I haven't gotten the stomach bug since we got married. So it was very, very strange. So I bought a t- plane ticket home the day after I recovered. Probably shouldn't have gone on a plane, uh, but I did anyway. Got home and then pretty much from there slept and then took my wife to the emergency room. And um, it's very weird. So that was kind of the ending of the story. The ending of the story doesn't seem to be all that climactic, but there's just this weird aura surrounding it where all the data seemed to tell me that this was a calculated attack here and I was given these warning signs and the image of the clawed hand over the face really seemed to make that clear. Now I don't know if I'm how much I'm reading into that or not. I don't know Tim what you think of the image or if you had a chance to scrutinize it, but um I do know that people have spoken of these things happening before. I do know that people that work in exorcism ministry try to stay away from having pets trying to stay away from having certain connections because there are these retaliation i guess plots whatever you want to call it that can occur did you send me these before perhaps i might have they look so familiar to me and it's just like so familiar i think i did i think i might have sent it to you when i first reached out to you mm-hmm. but i'm trying not to seem so thirsty so i'm gonna say no nah, man I didn't, <laughs> send, didn't send you those it's, that's not thirsty. It's very difficult to for me to run my schedule because I'm I'm bad at it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just bad at scheduling stuff. So uh, I don't know what that's like. <laughs> that's why I was 15 minutes late to our interview. I was just I did an interview last night and I thought, oh, I did my interview for the week, not thinking, no, there's there's another one. So I don't look at it no, as you're, thirsty. Uh, I, that, I, that. So the one thing I want to point out about this, uh, for sure, and I like because my wife takes care of so much stuff. I'm like, I don't have to pay attention to this, you know. And it's like, no, a little bit, just a little bit of attention will do. But, but yeah, I think we so, might be a little bit off sync. So go ahead, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I would point out here is that you're, there's also the possibility of racial causality. So because of all the bad stuff that happened, it could have affected stuff in the past. I know it's a little hard to, for people to get their brains around, but time doesn't only work in one direction. And we have laboratory results showing that time doesn't work in one direction. So it's possible that the cat dying, the emotional state, and everything else was able to push information backwards that created these images on the, the photographs, which you interpreted correctly that bad stuff was coming, but you couldn't pick up exactly what that bad stuff was directly. So as opposed That's to an attack... It might have just been something that happened. It was just, you know, and these events happened. And that's when they happened, those, that emotional energy transferred backwards and it showed up on those, those images. 
you interpreted it right that, oh, hey, bad things are going to happen, but it doesn't necessarily mean that something was trying to attack you. I mean, it doesn't mean it wasn't. It's just another way of looking right, at it. Right, right. Dude, that's interesting. I never thought of that before. Have you personally had any kind of bizarre happenings with time or with, with something like that occurring where something projected backwards and you received that? Or or are, uh, are you just familiar with the concept in general? I had literally had dreams about people I didn't meet for six years. Crazy. But also, as far as psi research, like in laboratories and stuff, uh, Dr. Bem and Cornell showed that people were reacting to images before they were even selected on the computer. And this was everyday people. These weren't psychics or anything. It was consistent across everyone they tested. It was peer-reviewed. It was replicated. There's something. Time does not work like we think it does. These people were reacting because it was all these images of violence or sex that would show in the EKGs. So anytime an image of violence or sex was about to appear, you would see it on the brain EKG before the computer even randomly selected it. Wow. Which says that, okay, so if that's happening on, on a normal scale every day... For a really emotional thing, for something that's really impactful, like I look at like Banshee accounts, you know, Banshees would happen just before somebody died. But what if that information's going backwards? The person's not picking it up quite right. And instead, they're sort of creating a poltergeist, which is the Banshee. Mm -hmm. And so it's not the Banshee is a harbinger of death. The Banshee is a result of the emotional state you're going to be in in a state in a day or two projecting backwards. Yeah, that kind of concept, I suppose. And, and then I had received some or watched some stuff on the, the concept of poltergeist years and years ago. And that cloud concept was brought up then. And that's the only time until recently that I've ever seen an entity described as a cloud. So that, that's interesting that you're talking about that. So these these incidents with extreme emotion or anger, violence, sex, that type of thing. Yeah. They're so powerful that they are like projecting back from the future. They're, yeah, they're well, yeah, they're projecting back from the future and they're and they're potentially activating a sort of an unconscious psychokinetic stuff coming out of you. You don't know how to translate that because we're not used to getting information from the future. So it goes to your unconscious, your subconscious, and that's where PK stuff, poltergeist stuff comes from. Is that type of energy. I mean, it might not even be like projecting back it's a good way of phrasing it because we perceive time linearly. Linearly, yeah. Yeah, but it might not be projecting back. It might just be there, right? It's like you're in a pond mm -hmm. and like a big rock, that big emotional thing drops into the pond and the whole pond feels waves of it. Mm -hmm. But the pond exists all at the same time because right. time's illusion. Right. Yeah, I, I sometimes think of it as like a, a ribbon folded over on itself. Again and yeah. again and again, instead of a straight line, it's it's probably more like a big tangled spider web or something. But yeah. Brother Richard talks about Kairos and Chronos, uh, right? And yeah. one of your one of your earlier episodes, and that concept broke my mind into it was so gnarly. Just thinking of like the concept of entering into prayer and then touching timelessness or being outside of time. How does that work with space, like physical I, space? I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, physical space, too, I mean, to some degree is an illusion. When you look at the quantum level, you have the spooky connection stuff. No matter how far apart electrons get, they're still moving in sync with one another. And if that's the case, that, that's not just faster than light. That's instantaneous. And it could be that beyond our phenomenal reality, there's a singularity where everything is interconnected. Mm. 
So then what are your personal thoughts then on like a spiritual ecosystem? Do you believe in entities like that or do you, because you seem to play, sorry for the bad pun, but you seem to play devil's advocate where you talk of like an impersonal, like, oh, this is your inner workings projecting themselves or this is this is right. a, a collective consciousness or whatever, right. you, whatever have you. But what are your own personal beliefs? Do you believe that, do you, do you lean towards that concept of like an impersonal collective or I, I think it's i think it's both i think there are times where it's just us projecting outwards and there are times where that energy can be utilized by something in the environment whether it's you know ambivalent to us or hostile to us i mean the, the problem with the concept of evil is it, it it's relative to who you are like a cat to us is a is a cute little cuddly creature but to a mouse it's a horrifying demon you know and so something on a different plane from us that either doesn't care about us or actively dislikes us can come across as evil can potentially use that energy and the same with something that that is on a on a different plane that does like us or gives a damn about us just like some people are are big supporters of protecting animals and other people just kind of hate animals you know i mean it's all perspective so I think so yeah, you don't believe in any like uh, objective spiritual laws then, or do you lean away from them? Oh, that's a hard question. Because like I can say, because like taking the the cat and mouse, right? Like a like a cat to a mouse is a horrifying demon, right? But a crocodile to a man is, you know, just is predatory in the sense. But nobody would say, well, crocodiles are evil. I would because right. I think they're horrifying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like put that principle aside though it's like an animal doesn't have ability to have the ability to to think morally exactly whereas man i'm like i got a sack of meat flesh right here but i could like operate higher principles over that and so then like the context completely shifts because of that that possibility oh absolutely absolutely as far as moral rules i think love in that that sort of ineffable sense is the most important thing. Like to understand that we're all connected. We're not in this alone. We're not separate on a higher level. We are connected by whatever this is, whatever you want to call it, whether you call it God or all that is. I, I mean, I don't think the names are necessarily important. I think they're different to different people based on culture and what you've seen in your life and stuff like that. And like you said, I don't think whatever that is, God is going to be like, oh, you didn't call me the right name. Well, I don't like you anymore, you know? Right, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I also think you deal with how you behave in your life when you die. What you see so much in in near-death experiences is people getting an instant replay of every moment in their life. And so they not only see what they did, but they see how it affected others, how they made other people feel both good and bad. So if you think about someone who's like, like Hitler, you know, who was uh did awful things even if he if he didn't do it directly he did awful things to millions of people well what's he experiencing when he dies if he gets to feel what he did to every one of those people i mean that right there is essentially hell mm-hmm. right right well i mean pima children said how you live is how you die and so that kind of that principle fits in there i mean it just that makes sense to me obviously i'd i'd have a different take on it but sure, yeah, sure. and I'm not um, saying I'm right. You're no, just no, easier, no. you know. No, absolutely, and I like I like to come back with it. I just always um, it's fun to play around with those ideas, with those concepts, and, and see where they take you. Yeah, I mean, you go with what feels true to you. 
Yeah, but often I'm wrong. So, you know. <laughs> hey, so we all are. Yeah, yeah that's how we right. learn. Yeah, we, we have to allow for that. Aiden, I want to thank you for sharing your stories with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate everything. Keep listening to your show. And if uh, anybody has anything uh, similar, uh, any experiences that they've had, kind of mirror mine, I definitely want to hear them because one of the most annoying thing about these experiences is that that feeling of isolation you know that like oh i'm the only one who had this or this kind of hit me this way and it's only taken a couple of instances where i've reached out to certain people just in everyday life and they've shared with me and and found real common ground in these areas and they've been really cool yeah i'd be surprised if we don't get some people writing and saying oh yeah i've had something similar soraya thank you as well of course anytime No curiosity of the week this week, but I do want to remind everybody about our Etsy shop. The shop name is Lost Grave, but if you go to Etsy and you type in Strange Familiars, you should see our stuff come up. You can get copies of my books there. Everything's been restocked. If you order my books, they come signed. You can get artwork, originals, and prints, including the artwork for this episode. You can get Strange Familiars t-shirts, stickers, and more. Check out everything at our Etsy shop. Again, our shop name is Lost Grave. There's always a link in the show notes at strangefamiliars.com as well. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. If you want to hear more or purchase music, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. You can join the Strange Familiars gathering group there. And we're on Instagram at strangefamiliars. Yeah.
is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.